Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Charlene Chang, back from her big birthday bash. Welcome back, Charlene, and happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. It's really good to be back. It wasn't like a bash, but we did get to go away um, family style, and it was, it was really nice, but it's really nice to be back. That's great. It's good to have you back. Um, so for today, you know, thinking that one of the podcasts that I you know, really enjoy listening to is the most successful popular sports podcast by Bill Simmons, the Bill Simmons podcast. And he re- regularly has family members appear on his show, right? And his dad will talk about Boston sports and his daughter will come on and talk about pop culture TV shows. I think she's like in high school or something. And he has a cousin, Sal, and nephew, Kyle. And it's just part of the drill. They don't have any particular expertise, but they're part of the show. It's a family affair. And so I happen to have a relative whose work and experience and journey are actually squarely on point with what's happening in the country today, right? So the Senate is expected to meet on Monday of this week will be uh, going airing on Thursday. So hopefully the hearing will have begun. They'll be mid-process. And then a vote on the Judge Katanti Brown-Jackson for Supreme Court is supposed to take place um, by April 4th. And so this is the perfect time to talk about Black women lawyers fighting for justice and representation and navigating what it takes to become a judge and why it matters who is on the bench, right? It brings to mind this book, um, I remember back when I was in college days, it was called Black Robes, White Justice, right? Capturing kind of the dynamics of what really happens in this country. And so I do have a family member who has lots of experience um, in this realm. And so we are delighted to welcome to the podcast a rising star in Nashville legal circles, her law practice and her advocacy as a, as a lawyer within Nashville. She's the campaign manager for her law partner, Khadija Bab, who's running for judge in Nashville. And perhaps most importantly, she is my niece, Courtney Teasley. Welcome to the pod, Courtney. Woo! Thank you for that amazing introduction, Uncle Steve. And I think you are right. It is most important of my accomplishments that I am your niece. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Courtney. We definitely agree. And also, we do want to let people know all about you today. I wanted to let the listeners know that we we had you on. Do you remember we had your voice on our Thanksgiving episode? Now it seems like you know, long time ago. But yes, I'm just, I remember. Yeah, you were like the highlight of the show for me, and I'm sure lots of others. And we're just so happy you're going to be joining us today. Oh. Again, we're going to be talking about the historic Supreme Court nomination today, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the Oscars at the end. So get prepared for that and. <laughs> Very check it out on, on your thoughts. <laughs> but let me give Courtney a proper introduction. Courtney Teasley is a Nashville attorney and the legal redress chair for the national chapter of the NAACP. In 2013, she opened her own law practice, the Courtney Teasley Law Firm, a boutique firm that focuses on criminal defense law, personal injury, civil rights, and veterans law. As a product of the community, Courtney is no stranger to fighting for justice. And she is now the campaign manager for her colleague, Khadija Bab, who is running for Davidson County Criminal Court Judge. Let's just jump right into last week's hearings for the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. I know for me personally, and many of us, it's been really difficult to watch senators 
like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz with their what we call modern day Confederate selves, letting their ugly racism, misogyny and overall misogynoir, which if people don't know, that's the term for discrimination and mistreatment of black women. Yes, there's an actual word for it because it's so common throughout our history. They just let that stuff run amok all over the place. So, Courtney, how have you been experiencing the hearings? And just what are some of your thoughts from your point of view so far? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a big one. It was it was very it's hard. It was hard to Mm. watch for me. And I think um, where was I the other day in a Oh, yeah, we had a watch party. There was a, a watch party for black women and it was hosted by and Lord Jesus. And I and, and I know if I wasn't trying to tell you, all, I, I remember who hosted it. But I want to say the NAACP got with a couple of other organizations here. And then there was a bigger organization, I believe they're in D.C., and they hosted a watch party. So it's a really private space for black women to watch it at the same time. And they were able to talk afterwards and listen to different black women's points of view while we were watching. And I was working while listening to it the whole time. And I just was angry. It's the only emotion that I can just articulate. It was so hard to watch this woman who is literally overqualified. Mm-hmm. more qualified than those who are sitting there now, definitely Kavanaugh, and to see them ripping her apart, mm-hmm. but how she held it, she had such grace. Yeah. She really answered every single question and made it relevant. You're asking all of these irrelevant questions like Marsha Blackburn, what's a woman? You know, just like things like that. Oh my goodness, it was hard to watch. Yeah, no, attention. There was this moment where so Ted Cruz does his stupid thing about critical race theory and got his little big charts and whatnot. And, you know, it's this whole thing about babies and can you, or can babies be racist and this and that? And then I mean, the whole thing was absurd, right? <laughs> and interestingly, actually, people, people realize that there's a picture right after his questioning of Cruz looking at his uh, Twitter mentions on his phone uh, oh, during the God. piece. Wow. Right? So you see what that was all about, right? And so, but this, it was such a quintessential moment when he asked her this crazy question and then she says, Senator, it takes a deep breath and there's a seven second pause. And it's just like Mm. every person of color, probably every woman in this country is like, had to do that calculation. It was just so fascinating. Yes, I totally agree. And that was one of the things we talked about in in the black woman space was that that look she would give, she would, she would take her breath and then you would just see her kind of look like, and it's almost a smirk, like this, you're ridiculous. But then she would just poise herself and she would just press on through. She just pressed on. When I tell you, she had to have had the world on her shoulders. Just, you know, everyone's watching her and we're, you know, a lot of people, all the black women were rooting for her and boy, she did not disappoint at all. Yeah, I, I definitely was, uh, uh, let's just say, not family friendly language. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm going to be honest, you know, and I just felt for her because I'm sure that, was, you know, it's like just the reminder of like how black women, women of color, they have to just do that. You know, they cannot, you know, you cannot actually just go there and just show exactly 
how you might be feeling. But I was super inspired in, in by you know how she held it together and super disgusted with these low lives. I mean, exactly. not, not, not surprised, but just they're taking advantage of the moment for themselves, quite frankly. Yes. Yes. And it had nothing to do with actually getting to more information about this person's qualifications and that what was well, actually at hand. Agree. I totally agree. And I think that a lot of times what they were doing, they want to trigger her. Like you said, they were mm. going on their own agendas, but they wanted to trigger her. They wanted her to be what every, you know, interpretation to them of a black person is or a black woman. They wanted the neck rolling. They wanted the attitude. They wanted all of that to come out. It's like, see, see, she can't even have a calm temperament. How is she going to be a good, you know, or whatever. Mm. They mm. wanted that, but but luckily, she's an experienced judge. She has been a black woman her entire life, <laughs> you know. So this is this was nothing that she's not accustomed to. It's bigger. It's on a bigger scale. We will say that very public. But she's been accustomed to this her entire life. I'm very sure of that. Absolutely, and that's it's just so deep what you just said. I, what like so many layers there. I do want to lift up some of the light. And thankfully, there was light. And what I'm talking about is like, as Republicans were ramping up their attacks on Judge Jackson, I found a real source of light, not only in her, but also in how much specifically Senator Cory Booker, who's from my home state, New Jersey, shout out. He gave such a passionate defense as making its way just went viral all over social. And it was just so moving. You know, he had her back, uh, African-American man, but Uh also a senator in Uh his position him describing Jackson as harbinger of hope and her tearing up and him calling her sister and saying like, God's got you. And you just felt that genuine love and support and a reminder for me. And I'm sure a lot of people like how important it is to have representation and diversity. So I'm just wondering from you, what, what did, um, I'm sure you caught that. How did that feel for you? And how did you experience that? Oh, I cried Yeah, because a lot of times black women, we're always at the bottom of the total pole, right? Mm. You know, everyone comes before us. And so we're always the protectors, you know, we're always the person going to bat for everyone else. We're the fierce protectors. And it's always been like that. And, and, and to have a black man speak life into mm-hmm. her and to hear him up lift her, encourage her when I'm sure she's used to being that one, that person who's always having to uplift, always having to carry everyone, always having to make sure everyone else is good. But in this moment, she didn't have that. You know, she couldn't be the one doing that to herself. And she, you know, she just had to stay, keep herself composed. But for him to come and just speak about all the notable things she's done, remind her that she, the boss that she is, the amazing person she is, she needed that. She needed that in that moment. And so I cried right along with her because I felt that. And for him to just know that she needs to hear this, you know, let me rehabilitate her. It was straight divine. And I think it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was so it was such. I mean, the interesting thing about it, right? So, you know, I got Cruz and them playing to their base and whatnot. But the whole thing was a real national moment. Um, for people of color, for black people, for black women in particular. And it really, I think, exemplified well, both, you know, Cory Booker, you know, at his absolute best, as well as highlighting how little we hear from that in, in terms of, you know, Democrats and, and progressive leaders. But, you know, we have a lot of connection and, and synergy and resonance, or frankly, in terms of uh, me and, you know, Cory's trajectory, right? I mean, we were both at Stanford. I didn't even realize till more recently that his 
So, you know, I read about this and, you know, Brown is the new white about how my parents tried to buy this house, 2637 Dartmoor Road in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and they wouldn't sell it to my parents because they were black. And so they had to go get this white lawyer, Byron Kranz, to buy the house and then deed it over to my parents. Corey had the same thing happen for his parents to him in terms of actually buying that house. It was kind of that whole connection point. And then when he said this thing about, when I look at you, I see my mother. Mm. And it was just like really that deeply resonated with me. And then interesting, Courtney, you're talking about black women always having to be the protectors. And it made me think about, you know, um, my mom, right? And Courtney's grandmother mm-hmm. that, you know, when she was, you know, in her last couple of weeks, Courtney and the family came up. We actually did this drive around the different parts of the city that had been, you know, where she had grown up and made her mark. And it made this protector thing made me think about that story. And I remember this, Courtney, about yeah. My brother, Jimmy, was the first black student in the elementary school in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, Fairfax Elementary School. And one day, one of his teachers grabbed him by his ear for whatever reason it was about. This must have been like mid-60s, right? He went home and told my mom. My mom went straight up to that school (laughs) and went to that teacher and says, you do not grab my child by the ear. And the teacher's all like, well, I have to do what I have to do. Mm. My mom reached out, grabbed the teacher by her ear. And says, well, how do you like it now? Right. right? And so I just feel like these moments, so many people have these stories and moments and what I was really captured in that whole hearing, I feel. I love that story more than anything, because you got to actually take yourself back to that. I mean, well, you know, I wasn't there, but I read about that kind of t- that time frame. And if it's in mm-hmm. the same and if you think about that time frame, how hostile the white people were to black people at that time frame and to have uh, grandma Doris to be, you know, bold enough. I mean, you know, it's a black woman. It's my children. You're messing with my kid. Yep. I'm willing to go to jail. I'm willing to go to hell. I don't <laughs> care. You know, you're not going to touch my kids. And so for her to show up and to grab a white teacher by their ear, I mean, that is... <laughs> I mean, she could have been hung. I mean, if you live a little down south where I am, you know, it could have been another way. But for her to not care and to have to show that, listen, when it comes to my kids, you don't mess with them. And and so, yeah, I, I, I totally, totally love that story. And it does embody just everything a Black woman is. Sometimes we can't worry about what happens to us. We, our protective mode is always there. It's a really um, profound reminder of this history. I mean, the, your family's history, which is ultimately, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. And that Katanji Brown Jackson is of a generation with Cory Booker. So essentially a generation of African-Americans whose parents could not buy their own house and also could not assume that their children's bodies would be safe at school. So thank you for that context. And then Cory's story is even more profound the way he tells. We should find the link where he gave the speech in Iowa about it is that it was 1965 and the Selma to Montgomery March, and you had a whole Bloody Sunday take place, right? So the whole galvanic car captured the attention of the whole country. And one of the people who watched what was happening was a white government bureaucrat in New Jersey who was moved and motivated to then go do what he did to do so that Corey's parents could actually buy their house. And so he kind of ties that whole struggle together from that effort to his family, to him being in the Senate. To him standing up and capturing, you know, all of us with his remarks at the at the hearing. 
So Steve, I wanted to turn to getting you to share your thoughts about your latest Guardian column. And by the way, congratulations on becoming an official regular column at The Guardian. Thank you. Very proud of you. And it's a great platform. I encourage everyone to check out Steve's articles. Um, You can Google Steve Phillips and The Guardian or go to uh, our Democracy in Color website Um, So, Steve, your most recent piece is titled Katanji Brown Jackson Hearing Reveals Republicans' Racist Fears. Great title. And you wrote about why Republicans are so terrified of the prospect of a black woman sitting on the Supreme Court. So can you talk more about that piece? Yeah, I mean, it ties a little bit to what we were just talking about, right, in terms of the, the continuity or the generations, in terms of the role that uh, our parents have played, right? And so we, I think we talked a little bit on the previous podcast with Amy Allison right, about how when Faye Rose Touré, who originally named Rose Sanders, came to speak at Stanford, and, she was, and she's a Harvard-trained law, lawyer, leader in the civil rights movement in Selma to this day. And she uh, still never forget, like 30 plus years later, her saying to the Stanford crowds, we didn't get into these schools because we're so smart. If it were just about intelligence, my mama would have gotten in a long time ago. Mm. And so what I, what I had to say in this piece is that what Judge Jackson was showing was how root, so the fact that her nomination is historic and not routine is a profound indictment of this country. And that she is clear that she's just the latest talented black person, not the first. And so that is, I think, underlying a lot of the fear and the animus on the right is that once you see how many talented black people there are, how many talented black women there are, it throws into question and raises the lie around the meritocracy of this country. And so, so if we're, how do you have a country that for 200 plus years has doesn't had a single black woman on the Supreme Court? I mean, how do you even get to that point? That's even Corey's point. Only four black people have been elected U.S. Senator in the whole history of this country. And so either it's, a question that will just nobody talented enough or you're dealing with profound racism and sexism in our society. And so she just symbolizes and personifies that. And that is very scary to these notions um, of meritocracy, which are relied upon by those who preside over a system that is still largely controlled by white men. And so that's why there's this deeper level of threat that she represents in terms of bringing that whole system crashing down. And can I also just add that while I'm really grateful and appreciative that Biden did make this choice and had made a commitment, public commitment to selecting a black woman as our next Supreme Court justice, we also need to be honest and say it's not just didn't occur to him overnight. Right. It's because of the history of all of the civil rights um, fights and the, the movements, including the most recent Black Lives Matters movement and Black women specifically also being so vocal, pressuring the party to say, you know, say we're the backbone of the party and we help you win elections left and right. And you, you just need you need to recognize and have our democratic process reflect us more. Yeah, absolutely. You did not come to it naturally. The, you know, many powerful, even white allies have to be pushed to do the right thing. And actually, somewhat in that vein, I do want to I want to switch over and, and talk a little bit more at like how this manifests itself at the local level in terms of what you're kind of dealing with, Courtney, in, in, in Nashville. And, you know, Charlene mentioned your colleague, Khadija's running for judge. Um, Davidson County, which is the county where uh, Nashville is. She's a Nashville native, criminal defense lawyer. I believe you guys practice together. 
He was also an assistant district attorney. And so I remember when you guys were out here a few years ago, when we had dinner, you were talking about, you know, both of you kind of getting more involved in like local government and local politics and whatnot. And that I think you had mentioned in uh, a Facebook post back in February that there are 10 black lawyers who are actually running for, for judge. So can you just give us some background about how this came about? Why did you guys think it was important for Khadija to make this bid? Why does it matter having for having someone like her um, on the bench? I think it's tied to the why it matters to have someone like Judge Jackson in the Supreme Court, but it also applies at the local level. So how did you guys come to this determination and, and, and why did you launch this campaign? Well, we came to this determination because again, you know, I've been practicing now going on 10 years. And I have been mainly in, you know, done other things as well. But my 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 love is always going to be criminal defense. And a lot of times as I have grown in this area, I mentor and assist a lot of other young black lawyers. Uh, two of them are actually running for judge right now. Khadija Babi and one. And then there's another one that I assisted when he came out to help him get his law practice started. And he's running. It's important because we sit here in these courtrooms every day. Okay. We go in front of these judges. And you lose more than you win. And in Nashville, in Tennessee in general, we have eight-year terms for our judges and our district attorneys. Our mayor and governor only have four-year terms. Wait, the district attorney has an eight-year term? Yes. It is an eight-year term. And it is something now that I've been bringing a lot of attention to. And a lot of the organizations are trying to come together so we can try and draft legislation. That way we can reduce this term limit. It's just too long, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what we're finding is when you go in front of these judges, they kind of don't care. They do what they want Mm -hmm. because their terms are eight years. So it's Mm kind of like, yeah, I'll do whatever. Uh, We we have a judge that has been disciplined here in Nashville and it happened in 2019. It was pretty, you know, it was an unethical discipline he received. It was hidden. And, you know, he's uh, running again and, 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 and they do this. And it is another judge has the same thing going on here. Uh, not the, not only the one that we're running against, we have another one that has the same thing going on here. And that has also been, that's been being investigated for being unethical and they're running again. And it's kind of like, I don't care what, you know, the community won't remember. Mm -hmm. They don't really, I don't know if it's just arrogance. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but entitlement Mm -hmm. entitlement. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're not accountable to the people who elected you. They don't show up. They don't do anything else outside of sit on the bench. And so that's what we saw, you know, and I could probably just go on all day about that, but that's what we saw. And that's what we decided was just, Enough is enough. At this point in time, you see 10 black people who are running against the current judges because we're tired. Mm -hmm. We're tired of it. And the only way that we're going to be able to get some sort of change is if we let them know that, listen, your seat is not guaranteed. Yeah. You're going to have to be accountable to the people. The people want judges who are not just sitting on the bench ruling over us. The people want judges who are actually in the community with us, Mm -hmm. who are not just showing up every eight years, who are not just coming out when it's convenient for them and lying and saying, oh, I believe in restorative justice. Oh, I believe in rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. But you don't show it. Mm -hmm. 
And finally, well, oh, go ahead, Uncle Steve. Well, I just get what are the you said you're you're in you know in these courtrooms on the regular. What are the racial dynamics of the people, who, the you know defendants and the people who are coming before these courts? Well, I, you know, it is always going to even though. Um, it's always uh, more black people than it is white people, even though we are the minority here. Mm-hmm. You know, the great amounts of people who are in front of the court system are black and brown people. And the people who are sitting on the benches, you know, the great majority of them are not black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And we do have black and brown judges who are sitting on the bench. And a lot of times you'll be surprised that their numbers maybe worse than the counter their, their counterparts the, uh, so it's, it is very interesting and we attempted here in early on when i first came on as the naacp legal redress chair in 2021 what we wanted to do is what harris county texas did we wanted to gather all of the information from the courts and we wanted to uh basically publicize and we started working with a, a data collection group here in nashville called code for nashville and we wanted to scrape all the data and be able to put it up per judge so you could see uh, how many people are sitting in jail, what are their bonds, how many, you know, every single week. And Harris County, Texas has that. However, when it came time for us to get that data, we have run into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock with the system just not being as transparent as they would like the, the public to think. And the data is not consistent. Clerks are not putting it in the same way. So that's something we're working on. So that way, in the next eight years, we're not in this same place having to just listen to these judges lie about what they're doing, you know, or what they have done and telling us what they want us to hear. We can see for ourselves what you have and have not done. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's so much of the oppression and equality, the power balance thrives on functioning in darkness and in the shadows and not out of spotlight around what's happening. And so being able to show what these numbers actually look like actually could be quite impactful. I mean, it's funny when you're not funny at all, but it is funny when you like you call a bureaucrat, city bureaucrat or a county bureaucrat and you ask them for information. That's like public information. They will frequently say, well, why do you want it? Right. right. Instead of like, mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. we're f- fully entitled to it. You work for the right. public. Right. But there's right. this whole resistance often that you find. So. Right. 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 So a lot of these forums we've been having, we've been asking these judges because you can advocate on behalf of having that data released or being more accessible. You can advocate on that behalf as well. Yeah. You know, nor, but they don't. Nashville is very. It, it appears to be progressive, but it's not as progressive as people think. You know, mm-hmm. you'll see they think they'll slap a couple of black people in your face and um, some <laughs> positions of, you know, power. It's like, oh, look, we have black people. So we're progressive. No, no. Sometimes we have to hold our own people accountable. If you have black people who are in positions of power and they're not serving us, uh, they're not serving the uh, the community. Uh, instead, they are just deferring and um, maybe becoming complacent in, in our situation, becoming a part of the old boys club or haven't been accepted into the old boys club. And now that's who you rule in favor of the old boys. Well, I have something to say in a minute about Tennessee's not being terribly progressive, but before we get to that, I know you were involved in, you know, some organizing or some protest after George Floyd was killed, really trying to bring about kind of more, um, you know, justice and equality within the legal system, law enforcement system in, in Nashville. So can you talk about what you were involved in after uh, in 2020 and 2021? 
After George Floyd was uh, killed here in Nashville, the protests just started being, I mean, everywhere in the world, I guess it was happening. And so the Nashville Greek picnic, we got with them and we gathered all of the different Greeks. And when I say Greeks, the members, the uh, black, historically black organizations um, of the National Panhellenic Council, all of those, I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta. And then we got all of them together, all the different groups represented and we organized our own um, protests. Um, you know, there's so much power in these historical Black organizations. All of our founders, uh, their key principles, they were all movers and shakers. I know my founders and Uncle Steve, uh, <laughs> Grandma Doris's founders, mm-hmm. also were all a part of the women's suffrage movement. You know, we were the only ones to walk in that. In, in, in back in the day. And so I wanted to organize all of us and ignite that former passion from our founders. Every organization were, were, were involved in this movement for Black people and trying to advocate for better rights for all of us. So we did a protest in Nashville and at that protest, we actually had a member of Omega Sci-Fi and he read George Floyd's last words. We all just staged a, a minute where we went through the entire time that he had had that knee yep. in him. We just did that entire time frame. Everybody was on their knee at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a young man was saying all of the words that George Floyd kept saying the entire mm-hmm. time. Wow. And it was so... Mm-hmm. So, so moving. And I mean, literally everyone was just not a dry eye because, you know, you can't imagine just sitting there suffering and just in front of everybody, you know, and and begging for your life, calling for your mom and whatnot. So it was just it was it was the worst thing ever. But it was very a very impactful moment in connecting all of our organizations for one common cause, which was just to bring a lot of attention to uh, the police brutality that is going on right here in Nashville as well. And we called out all of our our people in Nashville who have been killed at the hands of the police at that same thing. So uh, it was it, it was very, 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 very uh, emotional, uh, very effective. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to um, I should want to get to the Oscars. But before that, I want to <laughs> just give I want to give people just a little bit more context and background on the Tennessee politics in terms of you can understand the significance of the work that Courtney and Khadija and their, and their colleagues are doing in terms of fighting for black equality, right? There's a whole, I have a whole section in my book, because I didn't know anything about this dude until I started writing this book about Nathan Bedford Forrest. And he was the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He's a, a general in the Civil War for the South. He's a slave trader. There's a, actually a picture on the internet. I think we'll try to link to this in the um, show notes of an ad, an actual ad from the 1800s, Forest and Maples, slave dealers, quote, have constantly on hand the best selected assortment of field hands, house servants, and mechanics at their Negro Mart. This is who Nathan Bedford Forrest was. So in 1978, when I was 14, Courtney's dad was 17, the Texas legislature voted to put a 3,000-pound bust of Forrest in the state capitol building. Mm-hmm. And it sat there. Until George Floyd was killed, people started fighting in 2020 and finally got it removed last year. What the, one of the main forces behind lifting up the legacy of Forrest 
is the uh, Nashville-based organization, Sons of Confederate Veterans, 45 minutes from uh, Nashville. You know, there's a national organization. They champion the Confederacy. They have a magazine. They have a book called Rekilling Lincoln. And they, they still, to this day, are selling General Forest homemade soap on their website. And so this is the flavor. So not just that those things were happening, but that the entire state legislature was, you know, kowtowing to that level of politics. So this really is the context of the work for the work that Courtney is doing. And so we're just super, you know, proud and appreciative of um, all that you you and Khadija and other folks are doing there in Nashville, Courtney. Thank you, Uncle Steve. I appreciate that um, a lot. And and just, just to be clear that that work to remove that statue has been ongoing uh the bus came out first that was in the state capitol in july of 2021 and then just recently in december they took down that statue and so yeah that thing has been uh lots of students from tsu had been and i represented one of them if you remember back in the summer of 2020 um they were targeted and whatnot they've been always um protesting against that. And they started off protesting against that, uh, the bust that was in the um, state capitol. And so yeah. finally, after so many years of them protesting, it finally came to fruition. And, you know, I guess Tennessee wanted to utilize maybe just finally getting rid of doing something that they should have done a long time ago, doing it around that George Floyd time to make it look like they're actually doing something. Okay, before we wrap up, because I know we're getting close to the end of our time, as we promised, we will take a short few minutes to just touch upon a topic that I think is on a lot of people's minds today. And sure. Courtney, like, did you watch the Oscars? I'm curious if you did, if you watched it live. Mm-hmm. And if so, did you see how things went down with Will Smith and Chris Rock? And I know a lot of us are still processing. There's so many layers. There's so many layers of reactions and responses. Opinions are all over the map. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering what Courtney (laughs) thinks (laughs) right now in this moment. Uh, You know what? And when you just said that, it made me think about maybe I need a show just called What Courtney Thinks. <laughs> I would I would be all over that. I am for I am here for that. I oh was thinking you goodness. should have your own podcast. Just, oh, just call What Courtney Thinks. Lord, nobody would want to tune in. At I will. I you know <laughs> so many people would tune in. I'll be the first oh, one. Thank you, Charlene. I appreciate you. But I listen. I did not get to see it on uh, live. I, I wasn't watching the Oscars and, and with this campaign, I pretty much don't have time to do anything to watch anything I like, but I want to say I saw it. Was it this morning? Yeah. I, I saw it this morning on the news and I said, what? I, mean, <laughs> I, said, what happened? Well, I just start, I went through, I scrolled through social media and of course I got all caught up and watched, uh, read uh, some articles, just everything. And I saw what happened. And I rewatched it that moment. And I saw when, uh, you know, Chris Rock was making that, he said what he said, you know, he made the little joke or whatever. And I saw Will Smith laugh, right? He was laughing at first. Mm. But then I saw Jada Pinkett's face mm. and it, it looked hurt. Yeah. And yeah. that's her. Let me husband. just interject for a minute. Everybody may not oh, have yeah, that's the true. full background. The so Chris Rock um, was, I don't know, he was hosted, but he was on the stage and he was. Yep doing his little, you know, comedy routine. He made this joke, um, and I believe it was about uh, G.I. Jane, which was the movie where Demi Moore tries to, you know, get into the military and has her head shaved. And so Chris, uh, Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett, has this condition where her, like, losing her hair, dealing with her hair. So it was in that context, and that's some of the background 
um, for what transpired. Yes, yes, alopecia. And mm -hmm. so um, basically, you know, he makes he makes the joke about G.I. Jane, too. And, you know, people are kind of laughing and you, you even see Will Smith laugh, but she looks so hurt. You know, mm -hmm. her face, yeah. it wasn't funny to her. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, no matter what, you know, marital issues they have had, and we all know about the entanglement, but mm -hmm. that's still her husband and mm -hmm. that's still his wife. And to see them hurt like that, yeah. you know, he just reacted. I feel like he reacted and I feel like he had to re. I feel like he felt he had to react. You know, I think maybe he could have handled it. I think him yelling would have been enough or right. him getting him yeah, together. I think that, too. You know what I mean, Charlene? I think it would have been enough. But yes, I do think he went over the line. I don't think he should have punched him. I don't think <laughs> he was nice. <laughs> well, one of my friends, uh, Cheryl Davis, is on Facebook. Um, don't disrespect black women ever. Mm -hmm. Another friend, right? Uh, Lisa Dealer, she's like, this is performative, toxic mm -hmm. uh, male behavior. Right. Mm. So I'm curious how you experience it or look at it in terms of those performative toxic male behavior. Male so, toxicity, that's what it is. Male <laughs> toxicity. Well, in this situation, I think that I think Will Smith is probably dealing with a lot of other things. Yeah. He has been the butt of every joke when it comes to his wife. You know, mm -hmm. he has been uh, a lot has been going on with that. I want to say that there was some more history on that because I heard that uh, Chris Rock had made a joke back in 2016 when Jada Pinkett, I think she had boycotted the Oscars mm -hmm. and he made a joke like, well, she didn't get an invitation or that's, whatever. That's right. Right. And mm -hmm. so maybe there's a little more history than we know. Yeah. And so I think Will Smith was just like, bro, watch your mouth, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. or, or more accurately, keep my wife's name, name out, out of your mouth. mouth. Yes. Right. <laughs> and that's pretty much what it is. And I think I don't think that was male toxicity. I don't think that in this scenario that was. I think that Will Smith got a lot going on. And I think you know it when he first when he first heard it you know you know everybody's just kind of laughing because it's chris rock he's talking then he realized what was said and he realized how hurt his wife was and i think that he just had and, and maybe he knows something we don't know maybe even chris rock knows about the lop i don't know but mm. i felt like he felt he had to protect his wife and it just is what it is no i don't think you should have punched him i don't think that's okay to maybe punch anybody but <laughs> like, I like, I like Courtney's little, uh, the maybe part qualifier. <laughs> Listen, I, already, I always make this joke. So let me give you just a little bit here before I get off here. I, I always make this joke. In here in Tennessee, we have this thing you know, that's called, uh, we the lawyers, we say 4035-313. That is the statute about judicial diversion. So basically you can do something and, you know, you can get on probation. Um, if you complete it with no issues, it'll be expunged as if it never happened. It's not a guilty plea, but you know, I, we always make this joke. Like, you know, if something happens. I always say, well, look, I still got my 40, 35, 313. So maybe I need to, you know, I'm, somebody <laughs> me there. Look, so uncle Steve, I might have to pull a grandma Doris. Somebody messed with my child. I'll go up there. I will. I thought it was interesting that we had that story because it's like you do, you know, it's yep. um, it's yep. always more complex than mm. meets the eye. And so I just want to say real quickly that I totally understand where his, you know, basically what happens with anger. And I've 
you know, I, I, I'm really fascinated by psychology. So I've studied a lot about sort of what our primitive brain does when it's under stress. You go mm-hmm. into fight or flight. And that's where his brain went. Um, Chris's joke was insensitive. I don't know if he realized how insensitive it was, but it struck an, a chord of pain in um, Jada. And Jada's pain is then struck a chord in yes. um, Will's because they, there's a lot of love there. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're family, they're family. And he is feeling very protective and he felt her pain. So I totally understand that the brain went into fight or flight. And I even um, understand what he did, but I don't, I don't, condone it but i think he had you know if he had had you know i'm a big proponent of therapy i know i I watched their table show i love it but i don't know you know there's ways in which you can get um you know tools to help manage that but you have to be doing the work but i will say the part that i feel is unfortunate is the nuances are not going to be seen by a lot of people who including young people who look up to him and including yeah. People who are going to make racial stereotypes about yeah. white, white uh, about male, black male anger and black anger. Yeah. And all of that kind of pains me because it's not nuanced yeah. and it's not compassionate. And it's yeah. just going to go, it's going to have a takeaway that's just like, yeah. well, there it is. Okay. Um, so that is your uh, episode of what Courtney thinks. <laughs> I want to, I want to watch so, the, I want to have the real yeah. show exist. So I'm there for you if you want tips podcast tips for sure i will definitely follow up if i can ever find the time to just do anything else except this campaign (laughs) all right that's all the time we have for today you can follow courtney on instagram where she does most of her social media work um, at c teasley law letter c t e a s l e y l a w firm c teasley law firm is her uh instagram handle and you can also follow Khadijah Bab on Instagram at bab for judge B A B B. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And Democracy in Color is now also on Instagram. And I have my little tutorial with uh, Fola Onifade about how to use Instagram. So you might see me there more as well. Democracy in Color uh, account is Democracy in Color, at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, stay in touch with your family and keep the faith.